Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're in week three of our series called DNA, um, and largely what we've been talking through is just the different core values that we have as a church. We recognize that as we continue to grow, we want to also continue to do the things uh, that make us us, that we feel like God has called us to do. And so two weeks ago, we started off this series, and uh, we talked about the, our first core value, and our highest core value is going to be to present truth. So whether that means we're presenting truth from the stage or presenting truth in, in small groups or presenting truth in our interpersonal conversations and relationships, like that is our goal. We are always going to do that. And then last week we talked about the idea that we want to, we want to love the entire family regardless of age. From birth all the way to, I think I said 120, and if you make it to 121, we'll love you too. Um, but, uh, but that's our goal, is to love, equip, and disciple the, uh, the, the entire family. And so today we get to jump into week three, and next week we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the entire series. Um, but can, can I just be open? I'm going to be open for, for just a second. Uh, it seems that every week, and I know this is true not just of me, but of other pastors as well, it seems that every single week when I'm preaching about a specific topic that the enemy tries to do his best to derail me with the very thing that I am trying to, to teach on that week. And so if you went back to week one, I had conversations with somebody who really disagreed with the idea of just truth in general, and that truth is objective, it's not subjective, that sort of thing. Week two, I guarantee, and I don't know because it's just the chaos of our family, but I guarantee at one point, loving my entire family well looked like me yelling at my kids to go do something I had already asked them to do, right? And so this week, our, 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 our third core value is the idea of fighting mediocrity. We want to fight mediocrity. And so... Anytime that you're preaching on something like that, like excellence or fighting mediocrity or whatever it may be, there's a, there's a pretty decent pressure on you for your sermon not to be mediocre, right? Like, like I have to make sure that this sermon is a really, really good, like decent, uh, decent sermon. And there's some weeks, to be clear, that like in my prep, uh, the, the Spirit and I, man, we're in conjunction. The message gets written out really, really well. No problems, no hang-ups. And it's like, done, good, can pack it away and, and uh, start moving on to other things. There's some weeks like this week that, man, it was just a slugfest to try to get through this entire thing, right? To make sure that I had done my due diligence in my work, which I had done, again, the same, same amount of work, put the time in. But just some weeks are just harder than other, what other weeks are. And when we, when we want to fight mediocrity, I, I feel like this week was just kind of mediocre for me. And so uh, if, if you like my sermon, great, please tell me because I'm feeling a little uh, apprehensive about it. If you hate it, keep your opinion to yourself. I don't care, okay? Um, I can talk out of both sides of my mouth. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to do my best to do with the Holy Spirit, what I feel like the Holy Spirit has led me to, uh, and that is presenting on this third core value called fighting mediocrity. We are going to get, end up in John chapter 2 today, so if you do have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 2. We'll get there in a couple minutes. But as you see on the screen, this is written in our, uh, our best practices manual that we have for our staff. It says, fight mediocrity, that God has gifted every believer in a unique way that we are committed to utilizing and honing those gifts in order to be better this week than we were last week. That's our goal in what we do. 
Actually, I think that, that one of the biggest issues plaguing the church today, it's not how smart people are, it's not how good their programs are, it's not even understanding scripture or anything, it's not how well equipped they are or having poor discipleship processes or anything like that. I think one of the biggest issues in churches today is the fact that they simply do not fight mediocrity, that they don't pursue excellence on a regular basis. I think if you, if you were to phrase it that way, actually, I, I was a part of a church when I was in college, and uh, that church, man, it drove me nuts that every single week we were not being better than we were being the week before. I mean, there would be things that, like, the batteries would be dead in the same microphone three weeks in a row. Like, are you joking me right now? Like, just someone replace the batteries. It's not my job. I'll replace the batteries. I don't care. Let's be better this week than we were at this same time last week. Right? And I know what you're kind of thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, hold on. That has something to say that, that believers are gifted in a very unique way. We've talked about serving the last two weeks. So you're going to talk about serving again for the third week in a row? And my answer is like, Kinda, like a little bit. And so if you're like burned out on the serving issue, you know, deal with it. Um, so here's why I say we're going to kind of go, I'm nice, I promise. I really am, really am nice. When you become a Christian, right, when you become a Christian, uh, we, we enter into a, a saving relationship with Jesus. You have officially signed up at that point for a life of service forever, and I think we kind of glaze over that idea when we're talking about this idea of a profession of faith, of, of I'm going to pray a prayer saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life and that sort of thing. Because we pray the prayer and we say, Jesus, I want you to come and live in my heart, which is theologically inaccurate. The Holy Spirit, come and live in my heart. It'd be weird for Jesus too because he's flesh and, bone, flesh, flesh and bone, right? So Holy Spirit, come and live in my heart. And we celebrate this idea that's like, yes, you are saved. You're going to go to heaven one day. You're going to hang out with God, like kingdom of heaven now and, and forever. And then we go through the waters of baptism and we celebrate again. We're like, yes, marked, marked moment in your life. And we think of Jesus as our Savior, as we should. But oftentimes what we forget is that what we have signed up for is not just Jesus as our Savior, we've also signed up for Jesus as our Lord. And that means that we get to pursue a life of service, serving our Lord forever. And it isn't just because, like, we want people to feel good that we serve a whole bunch of people. Like, think about Serve Day that we just did yesterday is go out into the community. Yeah, we want the church to have a good name in our community, but it's not the same as like, oh man, we hope we're part of the Better Business Bureau one day or anything like that. That's not our goal. Like our goal isn't to be like a, like a I don't even know what they're called, like Forbes top 500. See, that's how much I don't even care about it, right? Like that's not our goal. Our goal is to serve God. Our, service, our goal is to serve Jesus through the entirety of, of our being. We are called to serve everyone. If you got into Christianity thinking that your schedule was going to be more free, thinking you were going to be more rich, or thinking people were going to serve you in some way, the opposite is true. Right? God, God promises us that with our giving that he is going to, he will bless us tenfold. It's the one time he says, hey, challenge me in this. But I've never heard of anybody who got richer by giving away 10% of their income. I've never heard of anybody who gets more time back during the week because they are giving their time away during the week. 
I've never heard of anybody who came, came to faith thinking everybody's going to be here, they're going to serve me, they're going to do whatever I ask, and I'm just going to show up and take from church and really had a long, fulfilling life or a long, fulfilling relationship with Jesus. Why? Because the, the opposite of all of those things are true. When you enter into a saving relationship with Jesus, you are supposed to give us your time. We're supposed to give like our money in order to serve God. And as we kind of look at it, it kind of seems like a raw deal. Like it seems, it seems kind of like you're like, well, yeah, I know I get to get into heaven, but man, I have to, like, I have to be generous and like I have to like give of my time. Like, I don't know. That, that seems exhausting. Actually, when I was uh, in junior high, every year my church did this massive rummage, rummage sale to, uh, to save or to, to raise money for, our, for different mission trips that were happening and that, that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure somebody who was a hoarder decided to come up with this idea. They were like, you know what? I want a free way to get rid of all of my junk. I'll give it to the church. And to be clear about church donations, this is oftentimes very true. That, that if you ever get to a point in your life at the, where you're like, you know what? I don't need this anymore, but the church, I bet, would really love it. My guess is, is that it probably is either no longer functioning or we don't need it, right? But you're like, you know what? I'll just go drop it off at the church, like a.k.a. the dump 2.0. And so that's what these people would do. They would come and they would bring all of their junk from their house once a year. And there's like this, like I can't underestimate the, the, the size of this rummage sale. We're talking like army-sized tents that you would see in Vietnam War movies. Like just with stuff everywhere, all over the property. And guess who got the joy of organizing all of it? The junior hires. So when I was at, some of you were like, amen, it's about time they do something. I hated it. I hated it, right? Because here I am, it's June, and like my mom is like, hey, you need to go serve. You're a junior hire. You get to go on this mission trip. Some of these things, like this money is going to benefit you. And I'm like, it is June, and I have to rummage through everybody's trash to organize stuff in hopes that somebody is going to come to this rummage sale, buy a thing that I might get a couple dollars from. Seemed like a pretty raw deal. Also, it was June, so I was kind of cranky as well, right? And I absolutely hated it. And, I, 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 they, and granted, they did buy stuff. We got money and all that stuff. But, but while I was doing what Scripture was asking me to do, to serve in a very real way, and even in this instance, I was getting a kickback from all of it. I thought, man, this is a real, like this is a raw deal, and I think oftentimes we think that about a lot of different things in our lives, right? Like, I mean, I think about a lot of times where maybe you have gone out of your way to help somebody out, to serve that person, and they either seemingly didn't care or were completely and totally apathetic towards you, right? We've all been there. I'm there regularly when I open the door for somebody, right? And I let them come in and they don't say thank you, right? Been there, you just want to grab them by the collar, pull them back out, shut the door and be like, you need to learn your manners, right? I served you. And you didn't, say, you didn't say thank you, right? It's not a great spot to be. Like it feels honestly pretty, pretty miserable at that point. And that is merely like, like oftentimes what we do is, is when we're called to something, we're like, okay, yeah, I know I'm supposed to serve. And we just end up showing up and kind of going through the motions. You show up as like just a warm body at that point, right? When I was at, when I was at the rummage sale, I wasn't exactly putting forth my greatest effort. As a matter of fact, I was putting forth almost zero effort because the question at that point became, what is in it for me? rather than how can I show people Jesus today? That became 
the issue. And it gets us from every angle, right? Like any sort of inconvenience that we walk through, we are frustrated by. And we think, like, what is in it for me? Like, don't you know how important I am? Don't you know how quickly I need to get through this? I always go to efficiency things because, like, that's my jam. Like, as efficient as possible. Like, let's just take care of things, right? And so one of my biggest pet peeves isn't just the door thing. You guys are like, man, he's got a ton of pet peeves. Yeah, don't put things on my dashboard. Don't walk slow uh, on the sidewalk, four people across so nobody could pass you. I'm convinced there should be passing lanes in Costco as well. And if you have an entire cart of groceries, don't go to self-checkout. You're not faster than them, right? But that's what we think so often. That's what we think. We think just what is in it? For me, you're in the way, you're a minor inconvenience to me right now, and so because of the fact that you're a minor inconvenience, I'm no longer going to show you Jesus. And that's an issue. That's a really big issue. Why am I more concerned about the one minute of time I'm going to save than I am about the impact I could have for this person when it comes to Jesus? And we're not just talking about patience here. Right? Like we want to fight mediocrity both in our faith and as a church. So fighting mediocrity is another way of saying like we want to be excellent in everything that we do. We want to make sure that the ministry, the effort, that the faith that we're putting forth is both above reproach as well as above average. That's what we want to push through. We, we see in scripture regularly that God blesses excellence. Hebrews 11.4 rather. It'll be on the screen. It says, it says, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith he was commanded as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he's dead. Now granted, this isn't a great example. Abel was excellent. He got the, the prime crop of all of the things and then um, uh, his brother killed him because of his jealousy of Abel being Excellent. So maybe that's not a great example. But, but Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is what he says. He says, And this is my prayer, that, you love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insights, so that you may be able to discern what is excellent and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love and excellence is what Paul is after for this church in Philippi. That's Paul's prayer. Some translations actually don't use the word excellence here. Some, some translations use the word uh, worthy. They would, they would love to, I, I love that we can see things that are, that, that we would do things that are not only excellent, but things that are worthy. And he's talking about worthiness to God. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 31, it says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts and now I will show you the most excellent way. And so if you look at, at 1 Corinthians, Paul, after he describes kind of what spiritual gifts are, that once you are sealed by the Spirit, you make a profession of faith, you come to a saving faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit then brings up spiritual gift, gifts in your life. He empowers you to do things in such a way that you weren't able to do before. And so he's describing some of these these spiritual gifts and who receives them and what they're for and all that stuff. And so his emphasis is that, that particular spiritual gifts do not make believers more spiritual. So in this, what he's saying is like, look, some of the gifts are really cool. Some of you can speak in different languages, right? Some of you can prophesy, some of you can heal, some of you can be a whole lot more like apostles than others of you can be because you have been gifted to be able to do so. 
And Paul's like, hey, just because they have different gifts than you do, and maybe your spiritual gift is administration, it's the most boring spiritual gift in the entire world, use that spiritual gift to the best of your ability. That's what Paul is largely saying here. It's a reminder that the church is is like a body, and every single part of the body is, is needed for the body to function perfectly. And all of the different parts exist to serve one another. Right? Great example. You got hands, and your hands serve your feet every single day when you put shoes on. Every single part of the body is needed to serve the other part. So every believer should discover how it is that they are gifted by the Spirit and value the function that they serve in the body of Christ. If one day my, my hand just decided it wasn't going to do all of the things that it was capable of, that that, that disability then hampers my entire body from functioning. And there's still things I can do, but I can't do the things as well as I'm supposed to be able to do. And in the same way, if there are days when we decide that we are not going to fight mediocrity, it not only hampers your faith, it hurts the witness of the entire body. Our excellence is a responsibility that we have both to the capital C church as well as to God and ourselves. So those are little snippets, but let's think for a minute about, minute about maybe other examples we have in Scripture of excellence. I think a great example is found in, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And in this passage, this is Jesus' first miracle. He's turning water into wine. So let's check it out. It says, the, uh, it says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants, uh, servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, so let's dig into this a little bit because Jesus hasn't officially started his earthly ministry yet. As a matter of fact, mom comes to him and she's like, hey, we got an issue. I need you to take care of it. And he's like, nope, not my time yet. And like a mom, she completely ignores his answer and says, hey, servants, listen to whatever he says. Right? So Jesus is kind of between a rock and a hard place. He's like, I'm not supposed to start my ministry. But the Bible says, honor my father and mother. Okay, I guess I'm going to honor mom in this, right? So largely, Jesus is like, all right, let's, let's do this entire thing. There's lots of different comment, commenters actually suggest the wedding would have probably been among close friends and family members to Mary, meaning she most likely had a hand in the planning and execution of this wedding. Largely, that's probably... What's going on? And in their culture, a wedding would last up to seven days. And it was, like a, it was a really big deal. 
And so to have the wine or any of the food or anything like that run out would have been an incredibly gross oversight on the part of those who were in charge of the provisions, right? Namely, the groom's family. Like, this would have been like a blot on their reputation. Like, can you believe it? We were only on day three and they ran out of wine, which is shocking. I'm like, I'm out at weddings after two hours. Like, sorry. Like, said hi, waved to the bride and groom, dropped the card uh, with some cash in it because I'm not thoughtful enough to get you a gift and I'm out right? But seven days. And so they, like, if there is an oversight like this, this is an issue. And this could have resulted in shame or disgrace on the part of the new couple and their extended family. Not the best way to begin a marriage. And so Mary, she approaches Jesus with this concern. It's, it's really unclear kind of what she is expecting from him at this point, or even what he believes he can do about it. She's just kind of simply raising the issue, and so, like I said, she kind of ignores Jesus' statement, tells the servants to do what Jesus tells them to do, and then he's on his way. And as we read this in English, when Jesus, like, objects to his mom at this point, it kind of sounds rude, right? It kind of sounds like, like, woman, like, that's not how, that's not the intention of this. It sounds like it's disrespectful and kind of harsh. But it's actually the same Greek word that Jesus, that Jesus uses to uh, address the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Same word that she used. There's the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And Jesus uses that, that same word. His own mom when he's hanging on the cross in John chapter 19. And Mary Magdalene after the resurrection in John chapter 20 as well. It would probably be more, better understood not woman, but more like ma- ma'am. Not mom, ma'am. Right? So there's still like, it's not exactly like an endearing term, but it's not a cold term either. So Jesus is paying respects to his mom at this point by saying, ma'am. So Jesus' follow-up question kind of, be, kind of seems to be a, a sort of measured rebuke because his, his public ministry is just getting started. And he kind of seemed to be reluctant to go public with a lot of these different things that he was uh, able to do because this was going to gain him tons of notoriety. The, this year and last year, we spent a ton of time in the book of Mark. And one of the things that we consistently saw as we were walking through the book of Mark is, man, the Jews, all they wanted was for Jesus to heal them and show them a sign. Heal them, show them a sign. All they were interested in was Jesus as the magician oftentimes. And so Jesus knew if he did this sign in such a way that people were going to be able to see it, he was going to gain far too much notoriety for what he was ready for at this, uh, at this point. So somewhere between uh, the servants filling the jars with water and the master of the feast kind of tasting the wine, the miracle happened. And I don't know if it was when they like, uh, they they put the ladle in and then all of a sudden, then it was wine. It doesn't explicitly, explicitly say, but the miracle happened. And Jesus at this point, man, he bypasses months of harvesting, crushing, fermenting, and mixing. In a moment, in one moment, he turns water into wine. And the master of the feast even acknowledges this is the best wine that they have served at the feast. I mean, I think for most of us, we would have been pretty cool if it was just like water to wine and the wine was terrible still. Be like, dang, he still changed water to wine. I don't really care how it tastes. It used to be water. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't just change it to to any type of wine. Jesus changes changes it to, to the best wine. 
what could have been like this shameful blot on the family. Jesus could have easily just been like, you know what, here's some diesel. That's not what he was interested in. What, what could have been shameful ended up being a marker that is now known 2,000 years later that Jesus made the best wine, not just good wine or passable wine. If you've been around church for a while, man, you kind of you under, understand this. That Jesus doesn't show up to the wedding to serve. Jesus just shows up to the wedding with him and his buddies. And because no one knew who performed the miracle except the servants, man, Jesus doesn't get all of this notoriety. It's still kind of behind the scenes and kind of eventually people find out about it. The disciples understand what went down. And so because they saw what went down, they believe now really who Jesus, Jesus is for the first time. But there is something different about this wine. And that wine is excellent. Church, we should be marked by excellent, not just passable. Well, maybe that's an isolated insulin. Maybe that's like, oh, New Testament. And plus, that's Jesus, man. That guy's perfect. Man, of course he's going to make the best wine. He's perfect in everything, everything that he did. It is all throughout Scripture that God wants our best. Not just something that's just like, okay. You're like, well, well you gave it the old college try. No, like that's not what God is interested in. He is interested in our best. Look at Leviticus. It's not going to be at the screen. Leviticus 4. So he goes like, there's a Leviticus? Yeah, the very beginning of the Bible. Okay? Leviticus is largely the Hebrew law, the Jewish law, what the, what, what the Israelites were required to do in order to stay pure in the sight of God. But we all recognize that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And so because of that, there was no way towards perfection. And so in, in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, it outlines what's supposed to happen. Not if you sin on purpose. This is how what you're supposed to do if you accidentally sin. If you're like, oh man, my bad. I realized I sinned in that moment. I didn't mean to. Listen to what it is that you were required to do if you accidentally sinned and tell me that God is not concerned about our best ability. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commandments. Okay, again, unintentional sin. Verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, bring guilt on all the people. He must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering. Okay, that alone, finding a bull without defect. For the sin that he has committed, he is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. You're getting a very vivid word picture here this morning. Verse 5, then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He's to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar or burnt offering at, uh, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all of the fat from the bull of the, of the sin offering, all of the fat that is connected to the internal organs, both kidneys and the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox. Sacrifice is a fellowship offering. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But... 
the hide of the bull and all of its flesh, as well as the head and the legs, the internal organs, the intestines, that is, all the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. That's an accidental sin. It's like, here's everything that you have to do now. And God doesn't say like, hey, six or seven drops of blood on the altar. Seven. He didn't say eight. He didn't say, well, dip your finger into the blood and drip it, drip it as many times as you have blood on your finger. Wow, well, I had enough blood for six, and that's kind of icky, so I don't want to do it again like I'm cool. No, God demanded perfection here. He demanded excellence here from these people. That is God's, God's heart is excellent. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God not just a man being a good person, but there is a thoroughness and an excellence associated with acting on God's behalf. Why? Because you're acting on God's behalf. That's why. And this isn't just like isolated to FBH, right? But the church in general should be so excellent that it puts other social sectors to shame by how great it is that we do everything. Like fighting mediocrity is offering the best of your time and talent in, in, in like thorough preparation and execution of God's service. Like the standard of excellence requires that we do God's service with superior quality that reflects the eternal impact of the kingdom of God. We want people to know that we are Christians, not just by our love, and scripture is very clear that we want people to know that we're Christians by our love, but by our excellence in which we do things. So the question then becomes, well, we may care, but does God care about how well that we do things? Like, does God care about quality? Is he concerned with how, like, how well things are? Does it make any difference to God whether the instruments are in tune? Like, whether the worship team has rehearsed the songs? Does it really matter if we ran out of donuts again this week? And some people would say no. Like, no, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We, we tried our best. All God cares about is hearts. It's the thought that counts. God's not impressed with a slick program or flashy audio visuals. What matters to him are internal things like love and compassion and humility, which is true. God absolutely cares about those things. God is primarily concerned with our hearts, but God does care about those things as an expression of our hearts. He cares about that excellence because, because the way that we serve God in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, the way that we serve God in our faith, the level of commitment we have to doing things well, to honoring God in every area of our lives, that reveals what's in your heart. We should strive for excellence because God is worth it and he deserves our very best. I mean, there's numerous times where you've given your best to someone who later on you found out, like, didn't deserve it. Right? Maybe it's your boss or a friend or husband or wife, religious leader, whomever. That will never happen with God. He is worthy of our love. God is worthy of our devotion, of our worship, our labor. He's worthy of late nights and early mornings. He is worth making sacrifices for he is, worthy. he is worthy of us to be able to like give things up for him. That everything in our being should drive towards excellence in serving the Lord. 
And that doesn't mean like I'm going to sign up for every single serve day and I'm going to be a small group leader and I'm also going to serve on sound and I'm going to audition to sing, but I'm not really good enough, but at least I tried. Like that's not what that means. It just means that everything that you do in your life, whether it's serving your family or at work or wherever you may be, that you are doing your best to be excellent for God. Winston Churchill, he gives a, a spouse or a spouse, a speech to the house. Man, not, not great for talking about fighting mediocrity. Um, he gives a speech to the House of Commons, right? And uh, it's three days after becoming prime minister, and it's at the beginning of World War II. And this is what he says. He says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He says, before us, like we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it's to wage war. By sea, land, and air with all of our might and with all the strength that God can give to us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny. Never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer you in one word. It's victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror, victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. Even more than our country, God is worthy of our blood, our toil, our tears, and our sweat. He is worthy of our best effort. He is worthy of our highest achievement. He is worthy of excellence. And to be clear, there's many causes you could devote your life to. Some of them great, some of them not so great. Collecting stamps, rebuilding old cars. You want to practice medicine or law. Maybe you want to climb Mount Everest. Go nuts. Building a business, running for public office, raising a family, keeping your lawn well manicured. You want to do that? Go nuts. More power to you. Maybe you find a cure for cancer. Maybe you find new galaxies. Maybe you find rare beanie babies. I don't know. And to be fair, some of these causes are more important than other causes. But there is only one cause that's worthy of every single ounce of work, devotion, labor, sacrifice, suffering, and dedication. Only one cause that is worth giving our lives every single day. And that cause is serving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mount Everest is going to crumble. The galaxies are going to burn out. And beating babies are never worth as much as you think they are. And to be fair, like I said, some of them are more, more worthy than others, but empires even, such as the British Empire that Churchill fought to preserve, is going to rise and fall. Your body's going to fall apart. But serving God and serving his kingdom, those things have eternal significance, and those who serve him will be eternal with him. And the excellence, the excellence is like, like that is what sets us apart. Like, let me ask you a question for a second. Like, would you rather visit a rich family member 
who really doesn't care that you showed up, that you're kind of an afterthought. And he's like, yeah, we got some leftovers in the fridge if, if you want it. Or would you rather visit a, a poor relative who has done their best to prepare a feast for you and they are ready to enter into your home? Proverbs 15, 17 says, better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. It's not about what you have and getting like the shiny and new toys that impresses people. It's about recognizing the gifts God has given you and utilizing those, their greatest potential so you can serve God in such a way that you can look back at your life and realize that you wasted zero potential. My old pastor used to say, he used to say that, man, at the end of your life, I really hope you have no potential. And I thought he was insulting me at first. And I was like, what? That's a real messed up thing to say. Like, you're my pastor. You're my leader. What do you mean you hope I have zero, I have zero potential? Now, the definition of potential is having or showing the capacity to become or develop into something in the future. Develop into one day. Yeah, you have this capacity, and hopefully that, that, that it's not, like, at, when, I, when I, I get to the end of my life, I want to know that I utilized every single piece of God-given talent, treasure, and gifting that I had at my disposal for the kingdom of God, right? I want, my, I, I want that for my work life. I want that for, for my family life. I want that for my hobbies. I want people to look at me and know that I strive so hard in everything I do because of the fact that I love Jesus, period, full stop. So I'll end with this. There's a, uh, a missionary one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived, a guy by the name of David Livingstone. And I feel like his name is like a fake name, but his name really is David Livingstone, right? And he moved to Africa and he married his wife. Her name was Mary in Africa in 1845. And he never stopped pursuing excellence for the kingdom of God in his entire, uh, entire lifetime, and so there was, a, there was a time many years later when Dr. Livingstone, he's approached about the possibility of like a missionary society sending more men to help him uh, in his pursuits in, in Africa, to reach the people of Africa with the gospel. And so they wrote him a letter. And the letter, there were other things in it, but it largely said, have you found a good road to where you are? And if so, we want to know how to send other men to you. And so Livingstone, he, he wrote back, and he said, if you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. He said, I want men who will come if there's no road at all. Why should we give God our best? Because God gave us his. Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God gave us his best. He gave us his son. And to be clear, I'm not sure that we always recognize the perfection of Jesus. The excellence of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. Because oftentimes you just kind of see him in his humanity as he walked the earth. But Jesus was perfect in every single thing that he did. And not just the outcomes. In the processes as well. It was how we went about doing things. There was never a shred of mediocrity. And because of that perfection, he was able to be offered up as a sacrifice for each and every one of our sins. You're never going to be perfect. 
I am never going to be perfect. If you've already made a profession of faith in Christ, that means you're in good standing and one day you get to be in heaven with Jesus forever. That doesn't mean you stop trying. It means that in everything you do, you pursue excellence as you're serving the Lord because he did the same for you in the first phase. And if you have not, not realized that, and you've not made a profession of faith by committing your life to God, I think this morning is a good, good time to do so. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your word and his example that he put forth of just excellence, Father. And so, God, I pray that we would be excellent in what we do as well. That we would seek to honor you. We would seek to serve you. We would, we, every there would not be a shred of mediocrity in our lives because of the fact that we get to serve the eternal living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God, we want to be excellent. Empower us to do so. We want to be excellent so your name would be known. Allow us to continue to fight mediocrity. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's, if that's maybe you this morning, that you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, you've not yet made a profession of faith, and you want to say yes to him, you want to serve him, you want to pursue excellence in your life, in your faith, so you can honor God to the best of your ability, if that's you this morning, you can simply pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. We you make that profession of faith. We call them the ABCs. You simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And God, sometimes, oftentimes, I'm just mediocre, that I have failed you, and I will continue to, be fail, to, to fail you. And so God, man, just save me. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for us. Perfect sacrifice for us. So we wouldn't have to endure the wages of our sin, which is death. So B, I believe that. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.